Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Thus ends the reading of the Word of God. Let us now seek His blessing in a brief word of prayer. We ask this morning, Lord, as we come to this text about this wonderful meal which You have given to us, that You would help us to understand Your Word aright, that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand all that You have delivered to us in this holy, infallible Inspired in Eric Ward. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you, you are uh, what you eat. At least that's the phrase, how it goes. Probably you have heard someone say that at some point. Uh, typically, it's a phrase which is employed as a reminder that if you eat healthy food, you'll be a healthy person. If you eat unhealthy food, you'll be an unhealthy person. And, and I reckon this morning that that's true as far as it goes. However, as I reflected on that phrase, it, it struck me that there is a sense in which that phrase, you are what you eat, has an even clearer ring of truth when applied to our spiritual health than it does when it is applied to our physical health. You see, in this text this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14-22, Paul is acting as a physician of the soul. And he wants the Corinthians to understand that the food which they were putting in their bodies could at least potentially have detrimental effects on their spiritual health. To be more specific, Paul is here wrapping up a discussion which began all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It seems that some of the Corinthians, though themselves professing Christians, were still going down to the pagan temple and participating in the sacrificial meals which took place there, eating meat which had been sacrificed and prepared during those Ceremonies. Now, now the problem, Paul argues, is not really the eating of the meat. Okay, he, he said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that uh, that that food is not, is not those idols aren't really anything. The meat really doesn't matter. Uh, and, and he's even going to say later in this chapter uh, that the problem is is uh, not so much the eating of the meat. If you if you find it in the marketplace, fine. It's it's the fact that you're going down to the temple, participating in the worship there, and joining yourself 
what is going on. And the apostle wants them to know that that is not to your benefit. And as we see here, the corrective treatment which the, the apostle prescribes is abstinence from those idolatrous ritual meals. Don't go and eat that food in the temple. And it's in this context then that the Apostle Paul brings up the topic of the Lord's Supper. As is often the case in the New Testament, what we find here is not a systematic theological discussion of the Lord's Supper. Instead, what we find here is what we might call applied theology. Paul is here seeking to deal with a particular pastoral problem. And as he does so, he brings sound doctrine to bear upon the situation. And that theology then can in turn be applied more broadly. And in that respect, it serves as a foundation for the way in which we understand what takes place when we come to the Lord's table and participate in the Lord's Supper. So we could say much more this morning about the problem of idolatry in the Corinthian church. That would be a profitable use of our time. And we will say some. But our focus this morning, because of, 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 of what we're wanting to do, is to focus more on what this passage teaches us about the Lord's Supper. As Paul applies sound doctrine, as he applies his theology to this problem, we begin to learn a number of things. And on the whole, what we're going to find is that while the pagan meals that the Corinthian Christians were attending were conducive to poor spiritual health, the Lord's Supper was given to the church as a multifaceted feast to nourish them. And so consequently, I would this morning like to briefly consider five things that this text teaches us about the place of the Lord's Supper in the Christian life. The first thing that this text teaches us is that the Lord's Supper is a Christ-instituted element of worship. And we learn this from verse 14. Now I know what you might be thinking. Verse 14 doesn't say that. And that's true. That's true enough. Uh, however, in, in order to make sense of this text, we must observe that the general tenor and the general pattern of this passage is one of contrast. It's one of contrast. And so when Paul strongly exhorts the Corinthians, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry, he is exposing the idolatrous nature of the pagan temple feasts. And the primary way in which he is going to do that is to hold those idolatrous feasts up side by side next to the feast that Christ had given them. And so in the process, one is condemned as idolatry to be avoided and the other is praised and commended. So if the Lord's Supper does not follow, fall under Paul's admonition against idolatrous worship practices, then we have here an indication that it is good and right for us to worship in this way. 
This is a natural conclusion to draw when one considers the way in which this meal was introduced to the church. The Lord's Supper has, of course, its beginning in the Last Supper, which Jesus celebrated with His disciples on the night before He was crucified. It was on that fateful evening as the Lord was gathered around the table with His followers that He gave us the model and a clear command to imitate his practice. Consider, for example, the words of Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So in this gospel account, we clearly have the institution of two elements, the bread and the cup, and the command to continue doing this in the future. And as we read in the book of Acts, the the early church, we find, did not miss the message. Look at the pattern of life which was lived out in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Some have thought, as they have read this verse, of the breaking of bread as a metaphorical reference to the fellowship of the church. But notice that fellowship is already included in the list. It appears that Paul is, excuse me, that Luke in Acts is referring to something else. There is good reason then to believe that the breaking of bread in in Acts chapter 2 ought to be understood as a reference to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Interpreted in this way, verse 46 of that same chapter goes on to indicate that this was at least at first a daily practice in the church. There in Acts chapter 2 verse 46 we are told that day by day they were breaking bread together. And by Acts chapter 20 it appears to be a standard part of their Lord's Day practices. We read in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Here we have an early example of a Lord's Day worship service, apparently, where the church came together for the purpose of observing the Lord's Supper and hearing Paul preach. So clearly then, Jesus' command to observe the supper in remembrance of Him was heeded even in the earliest days of the church. It was recognized as a legitimate Christ-instituted element of worship which would, though it might outwardly appear similar to the feasts in the pagan temples, it did not fall under the category of idolatry as Paul is condemning it here in verse 14 of our text. And, And this might be a good place to briefly explain why we would do something like observe the Lord's Supper weekly. Certainly not all Presbyterians or Reformed people are agreed that the the Lord's Supper ought to be observed on a weekly basis. We can freely admit that. That's just a matter of fact. But most, at least, are agreed that it is something which ought to be observed frequently. That's, That's what our book of church order, if you have had a chance to look at that, requires frequently. Yet rather than defining frequently for us, the book leaves it open to the session of each church 
to set the schedule at their discretion. And the session here at Zion has decided to allow for weekly observation of the Lord's Supper. And again, I do believe that there's good biblical basis for this practice. When we look at what frequently means in the New Testament, we find that it was daily for a time, and then it appears to have become part of their weekly Lord's Day practice. So in other words, it wasn't something which they saved up for a special occasion. It wasn't something that they were worried might lose its luster. It was part of the regular life of the church. And so while different churches apply this principle differently, even within the OPC, even within our presbytery, we're going to make this a regular part of our life on the Lord's Day. And so I hope that it's something that you will grow to love more and more. And I hope that it's something that you will grow to look forward to. We want to be a people, if if the Lord's going to use us at all, we want to be a people who are built up by the Spirit as He works in us through His Word and sacrament. Verse 14, Paul condemns the Corinthians' idolatrous participation in pagan ritual meals in the strongest terms. He exhorts them to flee from spiritually detrimental practices. And by way of contrast, he begins to remind us of the legitimacy of the Lord's Supper, which he is going to use as a point of contrast throughout our text. The second thing that this passage teaches us about the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And this flows out of verses 15 and 16. Now, in order to even begin to explain what this means, it would probably be helpful for us to define what it means when we speak of a means of grace. And here, the Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us define our terms. Here's what question 88 asks. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? In other words, how do we come to enjoy the benefits of Christ's saving work? And here's the answer it provides. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially His Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So alongside the word of God and prayer, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are used by God to communicate to us the benefits of Christ's saving work, when used rightly and received by faith. In plain talk, what we mean when we say that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace is that as we are eating, the Lord is working. As we are eating, the Lord is working on us. And we can see this in the text when we consider the lofty manner in which Paul describes the supper. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Uh, The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Uh, Paul says that the bread and the wine served and consumed at the Lord's table are a participation in the body and blood of Christ. Now some translations have rendered this as uh, as a communion in the body and blood of Christ. Some have rendered it as a sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. But whichever translation you choose... 
It's clear that what Paul is talking about here is something marvelous and mysterious. And this is why the Reformed Church has not historically been content to say that the Lord's Supper is a mere memorial. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe you have at some point heard it said in church before that at the Lord's Supper, nothing really uh, special is happening. Uh, it's, It's simply a memorial. It's a remembrance of Christ's death. It's given to us as an aid to help us contemplate what Christ has already accomplished. I've certainly heard lots of people talk in that way. The problem with such a view is not that it is inherently wrong. Obviously, the Lord's Supper is meant to draw our minds back to the sacrifice of Christ and His death. The problem is that it does not go far enough. Paul says that the blessed cup and the broken bread give us a participation in the body and blood of Christ. Through this meal, we might say, as we come by faith, as the Spirit is working in us, we mysteriously feed upon the crucified Christ and his benefits. Now we're going to come around in a minute and, and hedge off the error on the other end. We're not saying that we are eating uh, carnally in some sense the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. We're going to get to that in a minute. But it's also on the other end not a mere memorial. Something is happening. We are spiritually nourished as we are brought into communion with the Lord to whom we are united by faith. Uh, One Reformed theologian, Keith Matheson, commenting on this passage, puts it this way. He says, this language of participation or communion, communion with the body and blood of Christ signifies an active common share in the life, death, resurrection, and presence of Jesus Christ. There is union with Christ by means of participation in the Lord's Supper. When we come to this table, we are brought into close spiritual connection with our resurrected and ascended Lord. Which means that the meal which we eat here is a means of grace. When you come as a Christian to the table with faith, the Lord nourishes you with the benefits of the crucified Christ through the work of the Spirit as He gives us access to our Lord in heaven. Jesus is present at the table. Not carnally, but spiritually and truly. Through these ordinary elements, uh, we are made, the text tells us, to participate, to come into communion with the body and blood of Jesus. So we see here in the text, these strong words that Paul uses, that the Lord's Supper is a Christ-instituted element of worship, and it's a means of grace. In the third place, though, it's also a communal meal. And we can see this in verse 17. Because there is one bread, Paul says, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. We might say that in the verses prior, Paul has emphasized the vertical connection which takes place between us and our Lord when we come to the table. Now, in verse 17, he is emphasizing the horizontal connection which we have with one another as we come to the table. As we commune with Christ by partaking of the elements, we do so not as mere individuals, but as the church of Jesus Christ. 
Paul makes this point by pointing to the imagery which is present in the sacrament. Insofar as we all come in the name of Christ, sharing the same bread, we demonstrate that we are all part of the one body of Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what kind of sinner you were. It doesn't matter how much you've got in the bank account. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. You fill in the blank. When we gather around the table, we do so as the blood-bought body of Christ. His very bride. The bride who will one day be seated around the table in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why Reformed churches have historically rejected the private observance of the Lord's Supper by individuals. We read, for example, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, paragraph 4, private masses or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone is contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Brothers and sisters, taking the Lord's Supper alone, it's been done, promise, um, misses the point. It misses the point. It's superstition. It's to usurp for oneself what Christ gave the body. So let us heed this morning the the words of verse 17 and rejoice as those who, who partake of this one bread as those who have been made one body. This is the church's feast and so we partake of it as such. In the fourth place, in the fourth place, the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Uh, We see this in verse 18. Now this is another one of those points that might strike you as strange if you simply read verse 18. But I hope that you will see that this point follows organically from what the text says. Verse 18, Paul writes, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now in order to interpret this properly, once again you must recall what it is that Paul is doing. Paul is contrasting the Lord's Supper and the pagan temple feast in order to expose the sinfulness of those pagan temple feasts. And for several verses now, he has been giving positive teaching On the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul is going to further illustrate his point by comparing the Lord's Supper to the sacrificial feasts of the Old Testament. And here's his point. As we have seen in the book of Numbers, it was only the priest who was able to make the sacrifices. However, For many of the sacrifices, and I've stood here and preached the passage, the priest's family was permitted to eat the portion of the sacrifice which was not burned up on the altar. In some cases, in fact, like those described in Deuteronomy chapter 14 verses 22 to 27, that permission extended all the way to the common people of Israel. 
uh, families who could not get their tithe all the way to the tabernacle were permitted to exchange it for food to eat in the presence of the Lord. So, on these occasions, though neither the priest's family nor those carrying tithes participated in the sacrifice, they were considered, to use the language of the text, participants in the altar. Through ritual meals prescribed by the Lord, they came to benefit from a sacrifice that they did not make. And Paul is using this as an analogy because what was true for Israel's feasts is true for these religious meals in general. Are you beginning to see the point? Just as Israelites did not need to make the sacrifice themselves in order to become participants in the altar, neither do we need Christ to be sacrificed in the Lord's Supper in order to become participants in Him. We do not hold, as for example the Roman Catholics do, that at the table we have an unbloody representation of Christ's bloody sacrifice whereby the bread and the wine are carnally transformed, transubstantiated into Christ's sacrifice, blood and body. As Westminster Confession of Faith 29.2 puts it, in this sacrament Christ is not offered up to His Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all. For remission of sins of the quicker dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So what we have then in the supper is not a continual re-sacrificing, but a commemoration of that once for all sacrifice. And through that commemoration, This is why Paul is talking about those sacrifices in Israel. Through that commemoration, like the Israelites who became participants in the altar, we come to benefit from an atoning sacrifice for which we were not physically present. As Israel participated in the altar, so we participate in the cross of Jesus Christ by faith as we come to the table. But, here's the problem. If that was true for the ritual meals of Israel, such that they could provide a proper analogy for the Lord's Supper, it was also true that the ritual meals of Israel could provide a proper analogy for the pagan temple feasts which were popular in Corinth. And that is where the whole passage has been driving. Again, applied theology. That's how Paul is bringing the doctrine of the Lord's Supper to bear on the problem of idolatry. If Israel could participate in the altar through a ritual meal, then Christians could have communion with Christ through the cup and the bread. The problem is that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If the principle holds true then those who participate in pagan temple feasts share communion with the demonic false gods for whom the meal was made. And that is why we say in the fifth place that the Lord's Supper distinguishes the church from the world. 
This is the focus of verses 19 to 22. Paul makes it clear up front in verse 19, just as he did it back in chapter 8, that he does not believe that an idol is really a god. He doesn't believe that the meat sacrificed to them is is really special in any respect even. That's why later in this very chapter, Paul is going to tell the church that they were welcome to eat food from the meat market or in the homes of their neighbor without worrying too much about whether or not it had first been offered to an idol. He's saying that these things aren't really anything. But buying meat in the market and cozying up to an idol's table were different animals. That's why Paul can speak so strongly here where in other passage he, he seems to have given them a pass. He's talking about different practices. And as he explains in verse 20, idols and their ritual feasts were not devoid of all spiritual meaning. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to gods. I do not want you to be participants with demons. It's in this stunning pronouncement that Paul really demonstrates the wickedness of these feasts and the problem of them. Participation in idol worship is not spiritually neutral. It's idolatry, which ought to be fled. It's a deal with the devil. So the text calls us to make a choice. You must choose which table you're going to eat at because you are what you eat. The Scripture says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Attempts to ride the fence, Paul is saying, are an affront to God who is jealous for His own glory. That's why he asks the question here. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Are we going to tempt the Lord because we think we're stronger than Him and if we go take uh, food from a temple, it's not going to affect us? See, the point here is that the the Lord's Supper outwardly distinguishes the church as the church. You either eat at this table or the Lord's table. You either eat at this table or the table of the demonic. And Reformed Christians have spoken of this meal as a sacrament, which the Catechism describes as a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So it's a sign which represents the benefits of the covenant in a way that you can see, in a way that you can smell, in a way that you can taste, in a way that you can touch. And it seals them to believers. It's not a meal of which the world can partake because they have no claim on Christ or His covenant. As a result, the Corinthians would be required to choose between the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And so must we all in our own way. And this is why, for just one reason, we ought to approach the Lord's table repentantly and carefully. Not flippantly. Because as we come to the table, we are in some way signaling our Removal from the world and our entrance into heaven as we come to, Je- come to Jesus through the Spirit. There's something incredible happening here. And so we must come with care. Knowing that this, 
This is a dividing line which distinguishes the church from the world. And so we ask, as you come to the table, are you trusting Christ alone for your salvation? Are you, are you repenting of your sins? Have you been joined to the one body of Christ as one who professes faith in Him? If you can answer yes to those questions, then gather around the table. Forsake the world and all the devils of hell and enjoy this multifaceted feast which is set before you. It is a Christ-instituted element of worship functioning as a means of grace wherein we partake of a communal meal, commemorate the death of Christ, and show ourselves to be united to Him rather than to the world. And those who partake of a feast like that will no doubt, if they partake rightly, be nourished and will go away strengthened because of it. And so if you're here this morning, I pray that you, you come in faith. And if you've not yet repented of your sins and believed on Christ, then hold off the meal and come to Christ Himself. You must first have union with Him before you can have communion with Him and with His body. He died bodily on the cross, shedding His blood for sin so that those who trust in Him might have forgiveness of sins if they come in faith. He was raised on the third day that we might have eternal life. And now He calls us all to repent and believe that we too might have a seat around the table. Amen. Let us pray.